Well, it's a privilege to have my brother Stephen here today. Give me a week of not preaching. That's nice. That's a blessing. But it's good to have him here. I always look look forward to having him come and preach to you, to have a different voice, although his voice is similar to mine. Um, but to hear how the work is going. And before our the Lord's Supper today, we'll have time to pray for, for him and for the ministry there. But it's good to have him here and good to have the family here. So Steve, come and preach God's word to us this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It's always uh, a great part of our trip to be back at Affirmation every year. We've been coming back to this church um, every year since we started our ministry in Germany back in 2007. And uh, your church has been such a big part of what we do there financially, encouragement, uh, visiting. It's just been an awesome sister relationship that I wish all of our people over there could feel as much as I feel. Um, but I personally am so grateful for, for all that you've done to make that church plant a reality. And you guys have really stood with us for a long time. And I'm grateful grateful to Mark also for keeping you updated on our, our pictures and, and what's happening in Neuenburg. Um, just I, I thought I would, uh, Billy asked if I would give a short update just on the church before I um, come to our sermon text. Um, we are growing slowly there in southwest Germany. So for those of you who are new to Affirmation, if, if this empty space here is Germany and this would be France and this would be Switzerland, we're right down here in this bottom corner. So we're barely German. Um, we're way down there in the corner. And we have a very small but lovely little congregation that, that loves one another and is growing in the Lord in a very difficult soil. But um, we, we've actually grown during COVID. A lot of uh, spiritual refugees, as other churches were closed, people wanted to worship, and we stayed open. And so they said, okay, we're coming wherever the word is being preached. So we, we have actually grown, grown a little bit during um, the COVID time, and we praise the Lord for that. And what's been exciting is we've also added some new staff members for the first time in 14 years. So we have uh, two new staff families. One is working with um, Outreach for Youth which is uh, what, what we did originally in the, in the, from the very beginning through sports. And another is an assistant pastor, he and his family and four children, who are doing, building up a youth program within our church. So we're really focusing heavily on the church. We have 26 children under the age of nine right now. And so this is the next generation, and that's where we're trying to really focus our energies and attention. So we are, we are really grateful for where the Lord has brought us. Um, one prayer request you can think about if you if you remember us is just for worship space we are slowly running out of our third this is our third building that we're in over the course of the last 14 years and now we're kind of reaching that 80 percent uh, capacity where if a new person comes in they feel a little bit like oh wait I'm, there's no space for me here and that's usually when they say it's a good time to be moving so we're, we're looking for a new space but right now as here I guess probably similar uh, property is very expensive and difficult to find but that's a good problem to have. Um, so we're thankful. So thank you all very much. And I bring greetings from the Neuenburg International Church to you this morning. Well, our sermon text this morning comes from um, Ephesians, a very famous, very well-known passage. Most of you could probably quote it without opening your Bibles from Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 through 10.
Paul writes, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Let's, let's pray. Father, we, uh, we recognize the limitations of the pastor and his ability to move any heart uh, to faith or to obedience, to love, to joy, or to the, any other fruit that come only from your spirit. And so coming now before you humbly, we look to you to now pour out on us your spirit so that we would not leave this place unchanged, but that any little truth that comes forth from this sermon would really penetrate into our hearts and not just come into our hearts, but then come out this week through our hands as we serve you joyfully. So would you do that now? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I chose this passage today because it's always difficult when you go to a church to preach one sermon. Um, I'm not good at topical sermons. I like like uh, like your pastor to preach through a book of the Bible, verse by verse. Um, we're currently in 1 Corinthians, where you guys are too. It's just pretty funny. So that's uh, I think he's stealing my sermon. So watch out. If you look online, you, you can find, see if that's happening. Um, we're just ahead of you a little bit. But I chose this because more as a sort of autobiographical uh, confession this morning um, of, of things that I've wrestled with as a Christian. I've, I'm encouraged by this. This is sort of the, the hobby horse that I've been on for a while that's really blessed me. And so I just wanted to give you some blessing from it as well. And it's such an important passage and and. and and well-known passage in the Bible for a reason, because it has such wonderful truth in it. Um, so this is not going to be a very uh, in-depth, exegetical analysis of the text, but as I said, more of a, a confession. Because, and, and I'm hoping that some of you are like me, that you have, in your own personal faith, sort of wrestled with, from time to time, a Christian apathy, a sort of Christian, even sometimes, despair and, and fruitlessness. Um, in your Christian life. And I know that I've gone through waves and ups and downs and hills and valleys uh, myself on that. And the reason I particularly love this text is because it, to me, gives us a, a, a new motivation for the Christian life, for obedience, for, for good works even. And it has awakened in me a new joy about being a Christian, honestly. You say, well, you're a pastor. This is your, you better do it. You should enjoy doing it. And I do, but there are times when it's just, yeah, you just, you kind of get into these, you know, troughs and, and I felt like this, this passage has really helped me, um, especially on the concept of, of obedience and urgency for Christian works and for good works. Um, I don't know about you, but I kind of have had times in my life where I feel like the idea of good works is almost sort of a, a bad thing. You know, you can, we think about good works and it's almost a, a, a negative thing because Jesus was, the only ones he was mad at in the New Testament were really the good people, right? The Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, the religious professionals. He was so kind towards the prostitute, you know, and the debauched. But the only ones he yelled at in the New Testament were the good ones, the, the Christian professionals. So I'm not going to be that. I definitely don't want to do that. So, so what does that mean for me? What do I do? So I don't want to... Should I seek Christian urgency towards good works and hard decisions for Christ? Or should I not do that because then I'm doing works righteousness and all that? Anyway, I don't know about you, but I have certainly wobbled on the donkey, so to speak, in my own life between a sort of legalism 
which is I got to do this stuff or Jesus isn't going to love me to like, no wait, I know the gospel better than that. I'm saved by grace. Um, which then slowly leads into the apathy of sort of antinomianism, if you know that word, sort of no, no real need for the law, no urgency, we're saved by grace. So what does it really matter in the end? This is the kind of inner struggles that I've dealt with as I've wobbled on this donkey over the years. And this passage uh, from Paul has helped me very much. Not only Paul, but another later servant of Christ and from my own hometown where I live now, Martin Luther, you've heard of him before, he, he wrote an interesting letter to Pope uh, Leo X called Von der Freiheit eines Christenmenschens, which means from the, uh, of the freedom of a Christian. And in this letter, he, he deals specifically with this question on the motivation of a Christian to do good works, to an urgency of obedience. And it's helped me so much that I want to give you a couple of those insights from that letter and then leave you with one of my own at the end. But all of it is basically standing on the foundation of Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. So here's my three points. I've, I don't usually do three-point sermons, um, but today I will. And it's uh, our condition in relation to good works is freedom. So if you have a pen and you want to write, you can feel free to do that if it helps you. Our condition is freedom in regards to good worth, works. Faith is the key to understanding good works, and the kingdom is the goal. Okay, so freedom is our condition. Faith is the key. Kingdom is the goal. Let's start with the first one. Our condition in Christ is freedom. In other words, Luther would say that we are free from the necessity of doing good works for our salvation. The gospel liberates us from, he would say, constraints and incentives for doing good works or to use a more modern analogy, from, from the cattle prod and the carrot. Neither of those are necessary for the Christian anymore. Now, the Catholic Church at that time was very good at using both the cattle prod and the carrot to get their people to, to obey and to, to, to do good works. They used it to great effect. Um, but Luther would say, that's not free obedience. That's not free. Now, to be fair, every parent in this room has used the behavioristic model before, you know, to get our kids to do what we want. We, we tell them, We'll take you to the zoo if you do this, or you'll, you're going you're gonna to get in trouble if you don't do that. We know how to use that, and, and at times it's necessary. But Luther would argue that's not free obedience. That's not free. Only in Christ uh, is your obedience truly free because both of these constraints and incentives have been totally taken away. The cattle prod, for example, of, of threats is totally taken away in Christ. He's taken all of our punishment. What punishment is, what are you going to threaten me with? I mean, it's gone. I you can't threaten me with hell because Christ has already taken hell for me. And the carrot, the, the, the incentive to do good works of rewards, that's also already mine in Christ. He's already earned all my rewards for heaven. So Luther says, in perfect freedom, we do gratuitously all that we do seeking nothing, either of profit or salvation, since by the grace of God we are already saved and rich in all things through his faith, neither profit nor salvation, neither the carrot nor the cattle prod moves us to obey. So our obedience as Christians can be totally free, Luther says. Now, this is important because we know that, at least every parent knows, that our goal is not for our kids to obey just because of the lollipop or because they don't want to get in trouble and go to their room, right? We want them to obey freely from their hearts. This is the goal. 
And Luther is saying this can only happen in Christ through the gospel. Because only in Christ are both incentives and, um, and punishments or threats entirely taken away. Because Christ has taken our punishment and earned our righteous reward. Okay, so that's first. So we're building up now. So, so first, in Christ, you need to know this as you're a Christian. In, in regard to good works, you are, you're free. You're absolutely free. But then the question from the Roman Catholics came back, which was, okay, we're free. That's, that's great. So does that mean I, can, I don't have to obey anymore? I can sit back and do whatever I want? I'm totally free, right? And Luther raised this obje- objection himself. He asked himself a rhetorical question in the letter. He says, if faith does everything and by itself suffices for justification, why then are good works commanded? Are, are we then to take our ease and do no good works content with faith? And then he answers his uh, imaginary objector and says, not so, impious man, not so. No, good works are still very important in the Christian life, but the key to understanding why a free man would choose to do good works is faith. And that's the second point. Our condition is freedom. Faith is the key to understanding why a free man would choose to do good works when he could choose to do other selfish things instead. I remember being on a plane with a, a Turkish, I was a, I was a coach of a Turkish baseball team, and we were flying from Eskisahir uh, to uh, Moscow for a baseball tournament. He was our shortstop, and uh, I, I shared with him the gospel, and he said, man, that's so, that's so cheap, you know, that another man would die for you and pay for your sins, and now you can just do whatever you want. He said, no, I could, I could never accept something like that. And, and that's kind of what Luther's kind of hearing, not from the Muslim perspective, but a similar argument, like, that just, that takes away all responsibility. But Luther's answer to this objection was, one word, faith. The faith which trusts in Christ for salvation is the same faith that moves us to trust every one of his commands. Okay? Now, I find this extremely helpful. I have to hope this will help you. This helped me. Let me see if I can explain. In other words, the faith that trusts in Jesus as Savior is the same faith that trusts him as Lord. So it's not two different faiths. It's the same faith. Or to say it another way, the faith that trusts in Christ alone for salvation is the same faith that trusts him when he says, blessed are the peacemakers. Love your enemies. Forgive your brother 70 times, seven times. You, you can't trust that God saves you, trust the gospel part of it, and then say, well, I don't really trust him when he says I should love my enemies. That, what do you then you don't really trust him. He said, no, the same trust that trusts him as Savior, trusts him as Lord. And so for Luther, even our good works are a matter of faith. This is not pure good works. This is a matter of who do you trust. So he says, the highest worship of God is to ascribe to him truth and righteousness. In doing this, the soul, the soul shows itself prepared to do his whole will. If he's true and he's righteous, then I freely do what he says. Why? Because I trust him. It's faith. It's not works. It's faith expressing itself in obedience. That was his comeback to the Catholic Church, a very powerful uh, response. I trust his commands are good. That's why a free man would choose to do what God says. And I think this is what David is getting at, you know, in Psalm 119. You know, the longest chapter in the, the Bible. Um. It's famous because he's constantly praising God's law. He's hungering for it. He's thirsting for it. He's longing for it. And that's kind of weird, right? I mean, it's weird to long for law. Uh, I've never heard someone say, you know, there's a new speed limit sign on 17K. It's like, yes, you know, or, uh, 
you know, new tax code violations this year I heard coming out. You know, aren't we so pumped about that? Um, that's weird. But David's love for the law was faith in God's instruction that it's good, that he knows what he's talking about. He knows how this world works the best. It's a light for my feet. It's a lamp to my path because he's keeping me from stumbling. He knows how this world works. I trust his direction. Okay, so faith is the key to obedience. Simply put, we trust him. I trust him for my salvation. I also trust him to to guide me in my life. That's why we do what he says. I thought that was very helpful. Okay, so freedom is our condition in regards to good works. Faith is the key to understanding why a free man would choose to obey. And now we come to the, to the third and final point. Now, in Germany, I preach about 17 minutes long because we have translation. So if this summer sermon gets done a little early, I apologize. Um, just what I'm used to, you know. Um, but the third point and final point this morning, and this, I want to carry the baton for Luther a little bit further, if I may be so bold as to, to suggest that I could do that. Um, but I think the only thing still lacking in, in Luther's analysis, which I think Paul actually gives us a fuller picture of, which we'll come to, is the urgency to good works. So now I understand that I'm free. I understand why it would be a free man would choose to obey God, because he obviously knows what he's talking about. I trust him. But still, what, 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 what moves me then to make the hard decisions? Why would I still then choose to suffer? Why would I choose to have that hard conversation with a work colleague? Why would I choose to go visit someone at the hospital when I could stay home and watch The Real Housewives of whatever? You know, I, why, why the, where's the urgency come from? That's, that's, what I, that's why I want to carry it one step further uh, for Luther, because I think he's exactly right. It just wasn't the nature of his argument. And so I'm going to, to try to take us that one step further. And I think the answer to that question that takes us to one step further is the kingdom, that we're free we trust him, but our works now as Christians, we not only obey because we trust him, but because we are also participating in his mission now on earth to make all things new. That, I believe, is the, is the, is the, is the, is the next step. So our condition is freedom, the key is faith, and the goal is the kingdom. So we're not obeying only because we trust his cross and we trust his instructions, but we, we trust in his mission. We trust that not only his knowledge is good and his Psalm 119 is good, but we also trust that Joshua 1 is good, that where he's bringing us is good and what he's doing is good, and we're a part of that. We're a part of that mission. I'll tell you why this has been helpful to me. Again, I told you this will be somewhat of a personal, personal confession. In my own wrestling with this question, wobbling on the donkey between legalism and antinomianism, has a lot of has a lot come because the question has been framed about good works and obedience and urgency and sacrifice for Christ with this question. Do I have to do good works or don't I? You know, just tell me. We want the, we're bottom line kind of people. Do I have to? Don't I have to? Do I have to go to church? Don't I have to go to church? Can I play soccer on Sunday? Can't just tell me what I can do, what I can't do. Well, um, this, the, the problem with this question is, is it leaves us with only two answers the way it's framed anyway, the way we often frame it, and neither of these two answers are sufficient. Either the answer to that is going to be, yes, you have to do those good works, which is obviously legalism, right? Or no, um, you don't have to do them. I mean, you can do them if you want to, but you're already saved, so you don't really have to. And that smells, of course, of antinomianism. And, and so that's why I've kind of wobbled on the donkey. And I, I think that 
even though what's funny about these two, legalism and antinomianism, even though they seem to be on opposite sides of the theological spectrum, they actually have the very same root problem. Do you know that? They, legalism and antinomianism are very, they're kissing cousins. They have the same problem. The problem is that, that both of them share is that they only see good works in light of me and my salvation. That's the only context in which they can see good works. For the legalist, good works are necessary for my salvation. For the antinomian, antinomian, they're not necessary for my salvation. But both of them miss the larger picture of what good works are about, which is the kingdom of Christ and bringing heaven on earth and his will being done here on earth as it is in heaven. I think that's what's often, at least has helped me to see where the urgency comes from, where Christian obedience comes from. Not only because we trust what he's done for us, but we trust what he's doing now and that I'm a part of it. So I'll give you this illustration. A guy is on the street in New York and he's, he's, he's uh, in front of a, a florist and he's standing there and he's just worried and you can see the sweat dripping down his forehead and he, and he sees an older man coming along. So he asks the man, he says, excuse me, sir, you look wise. Can I, can I ask you a question? And he says, go ahead. And he says, look, do I or don't I have to buy flowers for my wife to be a good husband? That's what he's wrestling with. You know, do I, do I have to buy her these flowers to be a good husband or not? And what does the older gentleman say? You know, I don't know what he'd say, but I, I would think he might say something like, I think you're missing the point. It's, it's not about you. I mean, you're included, right? But the, the flowers are not about you. The flowers are about, they're not even necessarily just about your wife. They're about your marriage. They're about building a healthy home and having a healthy marriage where you can raise kids up that will change their environments for the sake of, of Christ's kingdom and, and, and change, change the world. It's about, it's about producing fruit. That The flowers aren't about you. I think you're missing the point. And I think that's so much of the way we talk about good works today as evangelical Christians and why we so often uh, wobble on the donkey. Whenever we discuss the subject of good works in the Christian life, we have to connect it to the bigger picture of God's kingdom or else we'll always end up wobbling between legalism and antinomianism. As Christians, good works have zero uh, effect on our salvation. They have no, uh, nothing, no bearing on our eternal destination. They are simply participation in changing this world for his glory. Let me take another, let's do another illustration. Let's say you walk into a room and there's three guys in this room and or girls. It doesn't matter. And we ask them one question. And you're, you're a new Christian and you want to know, like, how's this whole thing work? And so you go to each guy and you say, um, let's just pick a random good work, you know, um, like tithing to your church. All right. So you ask the guys, do I have to tithe to the church to be a good Christian? And. The, the first man you ask, he's a legalist. So he says, yeah, you better if you want God to like you. You know, of course, I'm, I'm oversimplifying. But, you know, if you want God to love you, you better tithe to the church or else he's not going to be very happy with you. And then, you know, this, this is a man who lives in fear and is constantly understands good works in relationship to his own salvation. The second man, he's an antinomian, right? So he says, um, you don't no, you don't have to tithe to the church. I mean, you can if you want to, but, uh, you know, you're already saved, so it really doesn't matter. You do what you want to do. And, and in his case, he's also only seeing his relationship uh, to good works in the context of his own salvation. Namely, they're not necessary. But the third man in the room, see, he's looking at them with a puzzled look on his face. And he's thinking, 
I think you guys are missing the point. Um, it's not about must or must not. The real question is, why wouldn't you? <laughs> don't, don't you want to see Jesus reigning over the whole earth? Don't you want to see his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? We're in the middle of a, of a revolution. This is a war. And every war requires financial support. And we have the privilege of taking part in redeeming this part of the, of the sphere for his name. It's not would you want to or don't you. Why wouldn't you want to? See, he's neither an antinomian nor a legalist. He's a revolutionary. He has context for his good works, including himself, but much bigger than himself. He understands that Jesus didn't only rescue us by his grace, but also recruited us to take part in his world-changing new creation project. And now we come, that's the longest introduction you've ever had in a sermon. Um, now we come to Ephesians 2, 8, 9. But now listen, because I'm, I want to make the point that this is not my idea, nor was it Luther's idea. Paul said this. Every one of us can quote Matthew, uh, excuse me, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one should boast. Got it. We're not saved by works. Great reform classic text. Uh, how many of us can quote verse 10? Very often we stop at 9. Verse 10, for we are the workmanship, his workmanship created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, it's not about do I have to do good works or don't I have to do good works. Good works have no bearing on your salvation. You're not saved by, by, by good works, but you are saved to do good works. Do you know that? You were saved to do good. That's why he saved you, to do good works. That's, that's almost provocative, that's, that sentence. That's pretty, that's pretty amazing. You were not only rescued, you were recruited. You were not only saved from something, from hell and punishment and death, you were saved to something to take part in Christ's world renewal mission by following him and his lordship, seeking him as king in all parts of our sphere, in our garden. Now, this is amazing because it's really revived in me a sense of excitement about being a Christian, honestly. Um, because it means that our obedience actually has, it's important. Your words are important. Your prayers are important. Your money is important. To, it has an end. It has a purpose. You're bringing something about. It's not just about my growth and sanctification. Okay? that's We reform people. We like to talk about that. It's our... It's our growth and sanctification. Okay, to what end am I being sanctified? Well, that God gets the glory. Okay, well, how does God get the glory? Well, Jesus told us that in Matthew chapter 5. They see our good works and give him glory. They say, ah, that's what it looks like when someone follows him? Wow, he's amazing. So there, there's purpose again to being a Christian. There's urgency, but it's not the urgency of fear. Oh, I got to do this or else I'm not going to heaven. Or the apathy of antinomianism this is the urgency of participation in bringing about his glorious end. We're not only saved sinners, we're resolute revolutionaries, bringing God's culture on earth as it is in heaven. Now, just think about that for a minute. I want to draw that out because uh, I'm using the word revolution and revolutionary a lot here. And I know that's pretty hip today. You know, everyone's on a, some sort of revolution. Um, but we've been on one much longer than they have. So we, we got it. But we should know that. But just think about revolution for a minute. Think about revolutions. I've always been kind of intrigued by this. I went through a time where I was reading any book I could on revolution, the Irish Revolution and all the revolutions in Europe and so forth. They intrigue me. It's like, especially the French Revolution. 
Because the French Revolution was one explicitly founded on atheistic principles. So if these guys die, they're exterminated forever. I mean, why are you giving your life to this? Why are you sacrificing for this revolution? That's amazing to me. They're making sacrifices, even ready to pay the ultimate price gladly and willingly. But why? And here's the the point. Because they believed in the cause. They believed that this new government would finally fix the problems. They would bring peace in the world. They would end the suffering. Their, their, Their suffering had context. It's a revolution. And they wanted that end so badly that they were willing to do anything to bring it about, to risk their own lives. And this, my friends, is the same of Christianity. We're ready to sacrifice and to give, to take risks for Jesus, not just to increase my sanctification meter, not because it gets us into heaven, but because we believe he's the final answer. He's going to fix this world. We have context for our good works that goes beyond the question of my salvation. It includes it, but goes beyond it. And I think as Christians, we're often missing this context. And that's why we can't make sense of our suffering. We can't make sense of hard decisions for, for Christ. We lack that urgency. Go to a revolutionary and ask this question. Do I or don't I have to sacrifice for the cause? And he'd be like, what? What are you talking? Don't you want to? Don't you believe? Don't, don't you want? Don't you believe in our king? It's not a matter of have to or not have to. It's a matter of don't you think it's worth it? That's Christian obedience. You see, it's really a matter of faith. This brings us full circle back to Luther. Faith is the key to understanding good works. Faith in the cross, faith in his teachings, but faith also in his reign as Lord and what it means for him to be king over this place. To the person who asks, do I or don't I have to sacrifice for Christ? I think Luther would respond. I don't know this. Um, Maybe after we talked, he would respond. I'm just kidding. Um, And if someone said, do I or don't I have to sacrifice for Christ? He'd say, no, you don't have to. You're free. But if you believe in him, wouldn't you want to? To take part in his victory? It's not a matter of must or must not. It's a matter of don't you want to? Don't you believe that Jesus is the answer? Don't you want Jesus to be honored in every home? Don't you want him to be Lord of every business and every family in our town? Don't you want every person to be transformed by the gospel and by his kingship? Um, Not too long ago, I was reading through the Psalms, and I read Psalm 110. Yeah, It's a classic messianic psalm, but it's one of the messianic, not the suffering psalm, but more of his kingship psalm. And... um, Listen to verse 3. This is slowly becoming one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I say that about a lot of verses. so, um, But I do love this one. Verse 3. It says, Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. Let me say that again. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. Volunteering, sacrifice, giving, following, having the hard conversations freely. Is that the fear of legalism? Does that sound like legalism? Does that sound like the apathy of antinomianism? No, these are good works done voluntarily because we believe in the glory and the beauty of what it means for him to be king of the world on the day of his power. Just imagine. Remember what it was like when he walked our streets. The deaf heard, and the blind saw, and the dead rose, the proud were brought down, the humble were lifted up out of the traffic heap, 
the Father was glorified as people saw what the Father is like. This was the image of the Father come to us. Imagine what it's like when he's not just a rabbi in some dusty corner of the Middle East, but is king of the whole world. We long for that, don't we? If we're not longing for it, then we don't quite understand what Christianity is about. It's still a very personal decision. Of course it's personal, but it goes way beyond us. And our righteousness, our good works, our participation in that glorious revolution. Okay, well, let me um, recap my three points, uh, as I, and, let me, and I'll close. And... Um, and then in Sunday school, if we, if, we, if we have time for Sunday school, I'd love to um, sort of pull out what that means for us practically. Because there's wonderful practical um, applications of, of this truth, if you take this seriously, of how it will change your life. Because it will change the way you see everything. Um, but, okay, let me, let me review. First, in regards to good works, Luther reminds us that we are we're free. We're free from the, from the cattle prod and we're free from the carrot as incentives to obedience because Jesus has already endured our punishment. He's already merited and earned our, our reward. So we're free. Secondly, faith is the key to understanding why a free man would choose his, to use his freedom for obedience rather than for some other thing. And according to Luther, if, if you believe in this Jesus who justifies the ungodly, then you'll also believe in Jesus who, who tells you to love your enemy. He tells you you cannot serve God and mammon. Okay, you trust him. But lastly, the purpose of our good works, so we've looked at the condition, we've looked at sort of the source, and now sort of the purpose of our good works is to bring glory to God by, and now let's use Jesus' words. We looked at Luther, we looked at Paul. Now let's look at Jesus who said, Seek first my kingdom and righteousness. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. His kingdom and mission gives us context for obedience. It gives us what I like to call towardness, purpose, to what endness for our obedience. It's not just about growing my sanctification. It's, it's about bringing about his ends and seeing his mission uh, come to pass. A world that we all long for. We have a glorious reason to to obey, brothers and sisters. That's what I kind of want to encourage you to. It's, as I said, it's awakened me to kind of a joy about being a Christian. Uh, it, 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 there's a joy in making hard decisions for Christ because we, we, we have a glorious reason to go back to the cubicle this week. You have a glorious reason to fight for your marriage this week. You have a glorious reason to get out of bed each morning because we're, making, we're, we're doing our little part to see Jesus as king over that little sphere where I have influence whether it's my cubicle or my marriage or my family or my, 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 my sport team, whatever. You got purpose. You're important. There's not a person in this room, whether your sphere is a, 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 a small business or if it's the 120 square meters of a hospital room, you're important there. You have purpose until you, until you close your eyes and you say, and the Lord says, okay, you're done with the game. I'll take you out of the game. I'll give you rest. Until that point, you have purpose in this awesome and glorious revolution. You have a glorious reason to live. You have a glorious reason to die because it's in the name of a glorious mission of our glorious king. And when all is said and done, we brothers and sisters will be proud of every small scar we had in his name. Amen.
Let me pray for us. Lord, you are so good. And we can call you not just captain who leads us in in the mission, but you're also our father. And you adopted us. You didn't just save us out of the orphanage and the hopelessness, but you also saved us to a family, to the father's family business. We have fromness and we have towardness in this relationship. You've given us purpose and a reason to live, a glorious reason to live, a, a, a reason to get out of bed every morning. We're so, we've drunk in the waters of existentialism and hopelessness for so long. People are dying because they have purposelessness, but you've given us awesome purpose, glorious purpose to join you in, in changing the world in our little tiny spheres, in the little pieces of the garden that you've given to us to work in. Help us to remember that to find our joy in your kingdom and what you're bringing about. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.